Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Well, good morning. On October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Castle church door. Perplexed and disturbed with what he deemed to be a betrayal of the gospel by the church who, meant to, who were meant to proclaim the good news, Luther decided it was high time for a debate. As he nailed his contentious ideas to the door, he was inviting a contest of ideas, one he hoped would awaken the church to her misguided ways and in turn reform her teaching and practice. Little did Luther know that his act would become such a significant point in Western history. Luther was calling the church to reform. What he triggered was a tsunami of change, a momentous shift that impacted not only religion, but politics, economics, the very fabric of society. 500 years later, and we still feel the impact of Luther's act. Though we may not comprehend it, our very life, the very way of life that we have has been dramatically shaped by the events that unfolded from this time, from this call for debate. Over the past few weeks, uh, we have been, as a church, have been exploring this moment in church history. First up, Don introduced us to a few key players, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Auric Zwingli, three men who, along with their friends and contemporaries, changed the world. So last week, Don focused on two concepts, that of sola scriptura, that the Bible alone, sola fide, faith alone. This morning, we're going to take a little different approach, do things a little bit differently, and it may seem like a little bit of an odd turn given uh, the fabulous job that Don did last week at celebrating a couple of crucial Reformation um, ideas. But today, instead of a sermon as such, we're going to have a debate. A debate seems fitting, given that is what Martin Luther was calling for in the first place. The question we are exploring this morning is this. Is the Reformation best described as a necessity, or is the Reformation best described as a tragedy? Did it really need to happen? Did it really need to happen the way it happened? Was it a tragic tearing of the sacred unity or the unavoidable necessary adjustment to a church that had gone to the dogs? 500 years on, with all the shifts and changes, developments and progress, with industrial and technological revolutions that have taken place since the days of Luther and Calvin, I think it is fitting and right that we ask this question. My aim in having the debate is not so much to come up with a correct answer. Rather, my hope is that by exploring this question, we will be led to both great gratitude and praise for what we have been uh, given through the Reformation, but we'll also be able to acknowledge some of the pain and the division that ensued and perhaps become people who will work towards healing and reconciliation. Knowing our story is important. So I want, to, I want all of us to ask, what can we learn as we look back? The author of Deuteronomy uh, makes it pretty clear that remembering leads to life, forgetting leads to death. 
Knowing the roads that we have walked on in the past help us to know what roads to navigate in the future. Winston Churchill once noted, the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. So as we consider our history, our story, my prayer is that um, it would cause us to reflect upon our own lives, cause us to pay attention to what the Spirit of God is doing here and now in our day, and to consider the ways in which we are living out our confession of faith. So, we're going to have a debate. How's it going to work, I hear you asking? Well, I said it is going to be a little bit different. So I've invited two of my friends, uh, Mr. Necessity here and Mrs. Tragedy. And obviously Mr. Necessity is going to argue the point that uh, the the Reformation was best described as a necessity. And Mrs. Tragedy is going to argue that the Reformation is best described as a tragedy. They're each going to have seven minutes each, uh, seven minutes to present their case. Uh, In fact, on that note, do we have a volunteer? Not to debate, we need a timekeeper. Anyone? Anyone? Anyone got a phone this time? I'm saying yes, you can use your phone in church. You've got a bell. Yeah? Oh, Chris is going to be the, the guy. All right, seven minutes each. Now, everyone, you can, you can check the rugby results, and no one will know because you're allowed to be using your phone. <laughs> seven minutes each. Obviously, there's going to be sweeping generalizations. After these seven minutes each, uh, they'll be allowed to uh, comment, maybe four minutes, about, yeah, four minutes each on the uh, comments back, please. Um, they'll respond to each other, after which I'm going to sum up a few things, and we will move on and get back to glorifying God in our together worship, which will be fantastic. Uh, The rules are very few. No interjections or interruptions. No nasty name calling. And for you guys out there, uh, please no heckling, no throwing things. You may disagree with the line of argument, but the beauty of this is it's a contest of ideas and you are allowed to weigh them up for yourself. So without further ado, I just want to invite Mr. Necessity to the stage. So endemic was the institutional corruption within the church at the beginning of the 16th century that it is without doubt major change was needed. To understand why the Reformation was such a necessary thing, we need to understand some of the background story. What was happening in Luther's day? What was life like in medieval Europe? What role did the church play in society? How did people think about God? the church, what it meant to be human. At a glance, just a quick glance of the backstory, we will conclude that something drastic needed to be done. The century leading up to the Reformation was a time of turmoil and chaos, with a church that appeared to be inventing ways to undermine the good news of Jesus Christ. In particular, what occurred within the hierarchy of the church was outrageous. Popes were more akin to warlords than fathers of the faith, conducting military campaigns with privately funded armies. They paid more attention to these military campaigns than their priestly duties. They involved themselves in political intrigue and maneuvering to ensure their influence and control was maintained. It seemed they had a growing fervor and passion for pomp, for power, and for sensual pleasure. At one point, such fanatic festering for privilege and power resulted in there being 
three popes claiming to be the rightful God-appointed successor to the keys of the kingdom. Those who had attempted reform, those who did attempt reform, were treated harshly, most often burned at the stake as heretics. Though the occasional pope did attempt to curb excesses and move towards reform, by and large, the popes of this time were tyrants, more intent on returning Rome to her former glory than pursuing Christ. They had more in common with Caesar than they did with Jesus. Of one pope in this era, Pope Paul II's uh, historian Justo Gonzalez notes, his penchant for luxury became proverbial and his concubines were publicly acknowledged in the papal court. Concubines in the papal court, seriously? By this time, some 30 years before Luther, the papacy was pretty much bought by the highest bidder. Gifts and privileges were promised to cardinals to buy their support. Nepotism reached new heights. The families entrenched themselves within Rome, setting up church leadership as family business that guaranteed excessive wealth through exorbitant taxes. The best grain went to the papal palace as the populace ate the bread of the lowest quality. During Luther's teenage years, Rodrigo Borgia bought the cardinal's vote and became pope under the name Alexander VI. Under him, papal corruption reached its peak. One writer of the time affirms that people used to say this, Alexander is ready to sell the keys, the altar, even Christ Jesus himself. He is within his rights since he bought them. While Europe trembled under the threat of Turks to the east, Alexander was making special deals with sultans. In the papal palace, concubines were commonplace, and Alexander acknowledged the many children he had had with wives of others in his court. The popes that followed were just as bad. The lifestyles of those so-called Christian leaders was the stuff of extremely trashy programs none of us will have ever seen on Netflix. Uh, yeah, anyway. um, these times evoke a similar scene that is found in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. In ancient Israel, king after king is said to have acted wickedly and done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The sad story of Israel does get occasionally interrupted with a king who did right in the eyes of the Lord, a Josiah or a Hezekiah. But in general, that trajectory is from bad to worse to utterly out of sync with the character of God. The leadership of the church had become utterly out of sync with the words of Jesus. Jesus said this about church leadership. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let, your, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Leo X took the papal throne a few years before Luther's famous act at the Wittenberg door. Leo X followed the example of his predecessors with his passion to complete St. Peter's Basilica, overshadowing any religious or pastoral concerns of the time. 
By this time, the sale of indulgences was the shameless business of the church. For Leo X, financing his building project meant a concerted effort to sell indulgences throughout Europe. Indulgences were, uh, Don mentioned these in the introduction to the series, indulgences were pardons from purgatory, the place where the church thought souls were to go after death in order to work off punishment for their sins. It was taught that by contributing to the papal income and church projects, he, uh, the, sinners, the sinner's time in purgatory could be reduced. The sales pitch went like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. There are stories after stories of corruption and selfish ambition, of scandal and simony. The stories paint a dire picture of the state of the church. The church dealt in superstition rather than life-challenging, life-affirming good news. Theology had become entangled in academic speculation. Far from being an aid to Christ-likeness, it had become an obstacle to it. The simplicity of the gospel had been swallowed up. So, to sum up, I think it is fair to say the reform was desperately, desperately needed. The institutional church, much like Israel of old, was spiraling into deeper and deeper moral chaos. It was failing to reflect, ooh, lucky I'm summing up. It was failing to reflect God's character into the world. It was failing to be a light shining in the darkness, the light that Jesus had called his disciples to live out. Alistair McGrath notes, a historian of our time, a complex system of priests and sacraments had imprisoned the gospel. Drastic measures were necessary. Reform was necessary. So I propose that is the case. Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Mrs. Tragedy. No, I'm, I'm definitely not going to do that. Can't, can't, can't do a whole seven minutes in that tone. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and to, uh, I want to thank Mr. Necessity for his contribution to the discussion. Jesus, when preaching on the kingdom of heaven, tells a rather serious parable of the wheat and the weeds. In his parable, the servants asked their master whether they should uproot the weeds which had been sown by Jesus' enemies. The master of the house replied, no. Least in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. As Mr. Necessity has made clear, a great multitude of weeds plagued the church in the 14th and 15th centuries. There was massive institutional problems, much misguided and malevolent teaching and practice. Reform was warranted, but did reform have to take the shape it did? Did reform have to be as destructive or as divisive as it was? Did reform need to splinter the church into a thousand different pieces? Could the reformers have avoided at least some of the division they incited? Could the urgent task of reform have taken place without bloodshed and without division? Could it be the reformers' actions were more akin to pulling up the weeds and taking half the wheat with it in their attempt? In John's Gospel, we read of Jesus having a final meal with his disciples. 
Here he gave his disciples a new commandment. Just as I have loved you, he said, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And later in that evening, Jesus prays for the church, and he prays that the church would be one as he and the Father are one. So how, in the light of these words of Jesus, could the Reformation be described as anything but a tragedy? There is no doubt the institutional church needed to repent of its ways and get back to some biblical understanding of what it was to be Christ followers. But the bloodshed, the bloodshed that followed in the wake of the reformers cannot be overlooked or ignored. Jesus called, uh, he called us to be a love one another community and yet what follows has got to be described as madness. And 500 years on, there still exists bitter hatred and malice between brothers and sisters in Christ. The Reformation was a time of great upheaval that left the church splintered. The level of discord and violence that ensued from the Protestant and then later radical Reformation must be considered catastrophic. As Alistair McGrath noted, same historian as that guy just quoted a minute ago, the Reformation initially led to the formation of a cluster of Protestant churches in Europe, subsequently to renewal and reform in the, of the Catholic Church in the same reason, and inevitably to conflict between Catholics and Protestants on the one hand and between various Protestant churches on the other. Within a matter of, three, uh, within a matter of decades, three major churches fought for a place within Europe. The Catholic Church was still a major force. The Lutheran church had gained much ground, especially in Luther's region of Germany. And the Calvinist, the Reformed church, was a growing force throughout the continent. Further to this, there was the Anabaptists, what we would consider the radical wing of the Reformation, who were somewhat more organic in their organizational structure, but no less a loud voice, a vocal minority intent to push reform to, further than most others. Each church... And here's the problem. Each church was forced to define itself in contrast to or over against the other, causing the struggles to intensify. This was not a time in which churches sought common ground. What ensued was a long period of conflict in which the, protest of, uh, the, the protests and the ideas of the reformers took hold in the popular imagination. This often manifests itself in severe backlash against the church as political positions were polarized in light of religious differences. By the second half of the 16th century, the situation on the ground had become appalling. So appalling that wars between Catholics and Protestants broke out in France. And it wasn't long before the wars of religion consumed Europe. It is estimated that between 3 and 11 million people lost their lives due to these conflicts over religious differences. 20,000 French Protestants lost their lives in a single day at the hands of Catholic troops, an atrocity known as the St. Bartholomew's Massacre. And before we start pointing the finger at one side of the deal, it was not only the Catholics that resorted to violence to defend their religious ideas. Just a decade after Luther had popped that little piece of paper on the Wittenberg door, Protestant reformers began executing Anabaptists. Anabaptist meaning rebaptizers. So between the Catholics and the Protestants, they attempted to stop the spread of religious ideas by drowning them. 
Some of the ideas that they had, by the way, we would be very warm to, especially the emphasis on the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Such bloodshed between Christian brethren cannot be condoned. The Reformation had opened the doors to madness. Pandora's box, if you will. The hatred that poured forth can hardly be reconciled with the words of Christ, the command to love one another, to go and spread the good news into all the world. It is worth noting that Luther was not intending on making this break. He was not intending to split the church. When he nailed his protest against indulgences on the Wittenberg door, he was asked after a debate, not a denomination. But one of the tragic legacies of the Reformation is this complete undermining of the visible unity of the church, something that undermines the integrity of the gospel and our witness to the good news of God's love for all. Our visible witness does not match our words of peace and love. We claim to follow Christ, yet we fight each other, kill each other in the name of Christ. Though Luther and his friends may not have intended it, the Reformation set in motion a new way of dealing with church conflict. Split, divide, schism. 500 years on, we have a situation where if you don't like what's happening, go and start a new church. Nearly summing up. Nearly summing up. One only has to look at the fragmentation of the church over the past five centuries to see the seeds of schism sown by the reformers continue to bear fruit. There are now thousands of denominations, most born of animosity and division. This start, stands in stark contrast to love one another. So it is a tragedy that the Church of Luther's day were so enamored by power. A tragedy that the Pope was given over to luxury and licentious living could not he could not entertain repentance. It's a tragedy that the reformers felt they needed to make a split from the Catholic Church. It is a tragedy that the church splintered into a thousand pieces and the seeds of schism are felt 500 years later. The reformers attempted to pull the weeds. Unfortunately, they removed much of the wheat. We can thank the reformers for the many, 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 many good things they have given us. But the disunity I suggest, undermines our witness to the world of God's love. Thank you. They will now have four minutes to respond. We're on target. It's good. Fine. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Tragedy. Thanks for your insights. You argue that the fragmentation of the body of Christ undermines the witness to the gospel. Good people at Gateway. I want to respond by asking if we might better understand this idea of unity, this idea of oneness. Maybe we could understand it in an alternative way, an alternative to the way Mrs. Tragedy here has portrayed it. When Jesus prayed that we would be one, did he really have in mind some institutional unity? Was he really thinking that the good news would spread through the globe and a community that formed around his teaching would somehow be bound together institutionally, organizationally? I think that an attentive reader to the New Testament isn't likely to conclude that Luke or Paul or James or John champion a church hierarchy based on Roman models of governance. Instead, the church that the apostles addressed through their letters appears to be connected by a much looser arrangement of apostles and pastors and teachers and elders, held together by their shared faith 
in Christ. In Christ. The communities of the faithful share a common doctrine while being able to celebrate the differences of their place. The book of Acts, the book of Galatians, both indicate that in matters of church leadership, there was conversation governed by the Spirit, leading to consensus. Nowhere do you find Peter desperately clinging to the keys of the kingdom in order to exert some power. Only when Constantine, early in the fourth century, decreed that Christianity would now be the state religion of the world, only then did the church run to structures of power. And as we have heard before, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as the centuries went past, the love of power took hold of the church with an idolatrous grip. So by the late medieval times, the church had lost its way. If we've been reading our Bibles, which I hope we have been, then we should not be surprised that there comes a time in God's purposes when he finally brings judgment upon rebellious people, his rebellious people. God was patient with Israel for centuries, but when they refused to turn and accept his grace, which required repentance, he sent them into exile. This shows us that God is not so concerned with being misunderstood that he won't do something radical in order to get his purposes of redemption back on track. Sure, visible unity looks pretty impossible right now. And this appears to undermine the witness of the church. But exile must have looked like the end of God's plans for Israel. Sometimes a radical action is required. For ancient Israel, it was exile. Could it be that Rome was so steeped in rebellion that reformation, even with the disunity that entailed, was the necessary break required for God's plan of redemption to move forward? And perhaps, more importantly, the Reformation has actually allowed us to grasp a better uh, way of understanding unity, a way way of understanding unity a little closer to perhaps what Christ had in mind, unity in diversity. A people united by faith, around sound doctrine, diverse in expression. Does this mean that we're doing this well? Does this mean that we're embodying this unity well? No, not at all. As Kevin Van Hooser comments, and he's borrowing off G.K. Chesterton, Protestant Christianity, that is theological unity in church diversity, Protestant Christianity has been tried and found wanting, uh, sorry, has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found arduous and left unfinished. Yes, the church has much, much to do to become a love one another community, the love one another community that Jesus prayed for. However, Protest was warranted. Indeed, protest was necessary. It was necessary because the very gospel of Jesus was at risk. Surely the prophets of old testify that visible unity is of less importance to obedience to the word of God. Thank you. Well, uh, well, I appreciate some points that Mr. Necessity has raised. It is, by and large, the, the fruit of the Reformation that leads me to conclude that the Reformation was a tragedy. In many, many, many respects, Luther's reforming impulse was justified. <laughs> Sorry, in-house joke. Luther's reforming impulse was justified. Corruption was rampant, and the authority of the Bible governed, uh, ignored. 
However, the Reformation set in motion things that could not be stopped. There was no fail-safe switch, particularly when it comes to questions of authority, the authority of scriptural interpretation. The cat was out of the bag. Aware of this dynamic, Luther himself tried to rein in the uh, the movement by emphasizing the importance of authorized religious leaders such as himself and institutions in interpreting the Bible. But it was too late. Who, his critics asked, had authorized these so-called authorities? Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, along with Wycliffe and and Huss a year, a century before, all sought to place the scripture in the hands of the people. They sought to translate it into the language of the people because they could imagine a church that took the word of God seriously. They could imagine a society radically reshaped by the gospel. This is a great aim. But what they couldn't imagine, and why I'm suggesting the Reformation is best understood as tragic, are the seeds that were sown. Seeds of independent authority that when germinated grew and began to bear fruit, ultimately paving the way for secularization, skepticism, and schism. And I would add to that list individualism, the individualism of the modern world, a civilization free from authority. With respect to Mr. Necessity's comments regarding the visible witness of the unity of the body of Christ, that is church unity, ecclesial unity, I agree that the reformers gave us an opportunity to develop a deeper understanding of unity. However, though that concept does much to encourage great feeling within the body of Christ, it hardly lessens the damage to the witness of what it is a love one another community's witness to the world. Perhaps the schism wouldn't have been so severe, perhaps the division wouldn't be so deep if the reformers had more, sought more of a conciliatory tone. Luther was not exactly an example of diplomacy. Brandon Withrow writes in a recent article these words, Luther's methods would have fit right in with the tenor of social media today. They included commissioning woodcuts depicting the Pope as the whore of Babylon from the book of Revelation. And another woodcut depicting Satan defecating out the Pope and the Cardinals. I'm not too sure commissioning these works of art is all that helpful. That message that Rome worked for the devil had longevity, and so in the 18th century, for example, evangelical uh, greats like Jonathan Edwards saw Rome as the prophetic antichrist beast of Revelation. Even today, there are Christians who continue to hold these views. Though we can thank the reformers for many, many, let me understate that, um, state that over again, many, many, many foundational biblical insights, their willingness to call out corruption, their passion and desire to see the gospel change the world, it is the unintended consequences that have proved disastrous. 500 years on, we have some 30,000 Protestant domina- denominations. In light of this, in light of those stats, almost, Nearly finished the sentence and it would have been done. In light of those stats, it is hard to say that the church is living towards Jesus' prayer that we would be one as he is one. This is a tragedy. Thank you.
Clearly, much, much, much more could be said. Our friends here haven't even begun to get into the huge, huge topics, the issues of biblical interpretation, beliefs about salvation that needed serious questioning, and beliefs that evolved from the Reformation that I think we now need to question. The Reformation is best described as a tragedy or a necessity. I'll leave you guys to decide that. The Reformation, the impact of it is still felt today. The shape of our Christian faith still bears the badges and the bruises of what transpired in the wake of those events that began 500 years ago. You may want to applaud and celebrate that which was won for us by the reformers, and we should. You may want to lament the loss of life, the loss of unity that happened in the wake of the aftermath. You may be indifferent. You may be sitting here this morning going, so what, Donald? Who cares? With that little snigger, I suspect that might be the case. (laughs) So what? Who cares? We are better equipped for the turbulent waters ahead when we know what the turbulent waters we have passed through. This is our story. And there are challenges and lessons that lie implicit within it. How do we rightly embody the gospel? How do we rightly reflect the character of God into this world? How do we best become a love one another community? How do we be a light in the darkness when it seems all encompassing? And if we're willing to listen a little closer, even a little deeper than that, there are even more probing, even more challenging questions hidden within our history. In what ways? Has the love of money, the love of power, the love of sensuality grabbed a hold of our hearts and led us away from Christ-likeness? Have we designed systems around ourselves that inoculate us from the voice of God? Systems that guard against correction. Systems that keep the Holy Spirit out. Do we resort to slander to defend our take on Scripture? Do we work for peace? Or do we kind of really like the contention? Have we loved the way Christ taught us to love? Perhaps 500 years on, we need the Holy Spirit to come to us and nail a challenge on the door of our hearts to invite us into a closer look at the condition of the church here and here, and over here. See, we are called to be people who reflect God's character into the world. So let us be a people who respond to the invitation of the Spirit to form and then continually reform our lives by His grace, in the power of the Spirit, to be more like Christ. Amen. Let's stand, let's respond and worship. Thanks for listening. 
we hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.